ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد before we begin today there's a small thing that i noticed during the prayer so perhaps we'll mention that thing first because it can sometimes be something that some people may require occasionally and that's when you have to sit on a chair during the prayer so how are you supposed to sit on a chair in the row in the jama'ah anyone if someone is unable to stand and so you have to sit on a chair during the prayer in the jama'ah how do you sit in the row on a chair do the legs the back legs of the chair have to be in line with the heels so we need a chair Somebody bring a chair. Of course, when you read from the scholars about the chairs and how to line them up, line them up in the rows, you may find some slightly different opinions on how to do it, but this is one of the best ways. Leave it there in the row. So this is a row. In that row there now, the chair is going to be put where? You have the row here, you have the row carrying on there, the chair is going to go where? So you sit right next to the chair as though you are the row, and you sit facing this way, you're the row on the other side. That's the row, the chair is in the middle. Where is the chair currently in the row? The back of the chair is in line with the backs of everybody. That's a method. Any other method? A corner and all those kind of things maybe, but if you're in the middle of the row, what are you going to do? Any other way? Could you, you could uh, maybe line your feet up if you only have to sit down on the chair when you go down and then you bring the chair forward to sit down. Mm-hmm. So when you have to sit on a chair, there are two circumstances. There are two circumstances when you have to sit on a chair. One of them is that a person is able to stand, but they have a problem with bending down into the prostration. They can stand, they can even do the ruku' maybe, but they can't go down into prostration with their knees or whatever else. So the standing part of the prayer, they have to stand. And the prostration parts, they can then sit on the chair. A person who's in that circumstance, when you're able to stand, but you're not able to go down and bend down into prostration on the ground, then when you first line up in the row, you line up, with everybody else stand up you can stand up so you stand up in line with everybody else meaning your chair is going to be behind you 
It's going to be behind you, behind the row. You're going to be stood up in line with everybody in the row. And it doesn't matter that it's behind you yet, because the person in the next row doesn't need that space yet. So you're going to start the prayer, Al-Fatiha, everything. You're going to do the Rukur. Even the Rukur, the person behind won't need all that space yet. You can still do the Rukur, even if there's a chair slightly halfway in front of you. You don't need all of the space. Then when you come up, now prostration next. Now the person behind isn't going to be able to prostrate because your chair is in the space where they need to go down and prostrate into. So then in that situation now, you're supposed to pull the chair forward. Pull the chair forward and then sit down. So now when you sit down, your back will still be in line with the row, meaning you are always in line with the row. When you're standing up, you stand up in line with the row, your chair is behind you. But it's not a problem, the people in the second row are standing yet. You go into Rukur, that's not an issue yet either. But then when you come out of Rukur, now you need to sit down because you can't do prostrations. But you can't just sit where the chair is because the person behind you won't be able to prostrate. So then you're supposed to pull it forward in line with your row. So now when you prostrate, your back is in line with the row still. If you didn't move the chair, that means you'd be now behind the row doing your prostrations. If you didn't pull the chair forward, you would sit down and you'd be behind the rest of your row. So you're supposed to pull it forward there and then do your prostrations. When you've done your prostrations and now you're going to stand up, if you leave the chair where it is, you're going to be... Not in front of the row. If you leave the chair where it is, where you prostrated and sat on it, now you just stand up and leave it where it is, it means you're going to be ahead of the row. So you're supposed to push it back again. Push it back again for the standing part and the rukur part. Then when you need to go to the prostrations, pull it forward again. That's the method which is the best method perhaps because it means you are always in line with the row and the person behind is never affected by your chair. You're always in line and the person behind is never affected by your chair because at the times of standing, you're in line, the chair's behind you, but it doesn't matter, the space isn't needed yet. When you go into prostration, you pull it forward so your back is still in line and now the space is emptied up for the person directly behind you to prostrate. And then when you go back up again, push it back so that you maintain yourself in line. And pushing it back isn't a problem when you're standing and doing the rukuah because the person behind doesn't need the space. The second situation is a person who cannot stand at all. The whole prayer they are going to sit, maybe somebody very elderly in age or somebody with some other medical issue, they are going to sit the whole prayer. Where do they put the chair? They can't move the chair about. They're going to be sitting the whole prayer. Where do they put the chair? Have to put it in line with the rope, which means you are going to be sitting. You're, you're, well, you're going to be sitting slightly ahead of the row and your legs are going to be slightly further ahead of the row. 
the back of the chair is going to be in line with the row. You cannot put it back and then you sit yourself in line with the row. That would mean the person directly behind you, that space can't be used and there'll be a break in the row. That person directly behind you won't be able to prostrate then. Or those couple of people, it's a, it's a mafsada. The scholars, they say that would be a mafsada. Because when it comes to a maslaha and a mafsada, to remove the mafsada is given priority over achieving the maslaha. The maslaha would be for this man to be completely in line with the row, to make the row straight and to be in line with the row. That would be the maslaha. But to do that would create a mafsada that the one or two people directly behind him can't prostrate. So to remove that mafsada is given priority over achieving his maslaha. So he sits slightly ahead of the row, his chair lined up to the back, the maslaha is gone, he can't be directly in line, but at least the mafsada has been avoided. So the one who cannot stand at all lines up the back of the chair with the row, the one who can stand up lines himself up with the row to start the prayer with the chair behind him and just pulls it forward at the prostration parts, pushes it back again when they stand up for the next rak'ah. So then, moving on to where we were last time. Bab man tabarraka bi shajaratin aw hajarin wa nahuhima. The chapter regarding the one who seeks barakah from a tree or a stone or something to that like. And we mentioned that barakah, barakah, it exists. And Allah puts barakah into different things. There are physical locations that Allah has put barakah into. Like uh, Arafah, for example. Arafah is a place where Baraka exists in it. There are times, certain times that Allah has put Baraka into over other times. For example, Ramadan. Ramadan is a time where Allah has put Baraka into it. So certain times, certain places, certain people... Allah puts barakah into them. And the seeking of barakah, it can only be done and it can only be performed restricted to that which is in the Quran and the Sunnah. So seeking barakah from Arafah is not by taking the sand in a jar to your home, but rather it is doing your worship when you are there in Arafah. Making your dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the same when you're at the Kaaba. The Kaaba is Mubarakah. But that doesn't mean that you take Barakah by wiping all of the sides of the Kaaba where there is no Sunnah whatsoever to wipe or to cut off the cloth and take it. That is not seeking Barakah from the Kaaba. Seeking Barakah from the Kaaba is by performing your worship at the Kaaba. So there are means and ways that barakah is sought when it comes to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Did the companions seek barakah from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam or not? Absolutely. 
And there are many different narrations about the barakah from the Prophet ﷺ, from his hair, from his sweat, from various things that they sought barakah from the Messenger. But those affairs, those specifics that are mentioned about the wudu water and all of those things, they are specific to the Prophet ﷺ. That is mentioned by the scholars, those affairs was specific to the Prophet ﷺ. A person cannot now come along and say, their Mawlana, their Imam, such a great wali of Allah, you can go do what the companions used to do with the messenger. You can go and take his wudu water, like we mentioned a while ago, 250 mil, being sold on eBay for a few hundred pounds. This is the wudu water that ripped off the hands of the Mawlana when he made wudu. So this is not permissible. And why is it not permissible? What if they say, but the companions did this with the messenger, and so we can do it with the great pious and righteous people now too? Just like we mentioned the other day, everybody claims Qur'an and Sunnah, but they fall down when it comes to giving an explanation of the Qur'an and the Sunnah from the methodology of the Salaf of this Ummah. If it was the case that you could do this, with other people as well, and it was not restricted to the Prophet ﷺ, then would there not have been narrations upon narrations of them doing this with Abu Bakr and with Umar and Uthman and Ali anhum and the other great companions? They would have certainly gone and sought the barakah from them. They were the greatest of this ummah after the Prophet ﷺ. Yet they never did that, never did they go to Abu Bakr seeking barakah from him in this way, as they used to from the messenger. Never did they go to Umar or Uthman or any of the companions seeking barakah from them as they used to from the messenger. Why not? Because they knew it is impermissible. It is not something that they could do now with the companions as they used to do with the messenger. Therefore proving it is impermissible, if this was permissible, the companions would have been the first of the people to do it. And they never did it. So in the chapter we came across the ayah, أَفَرَأَيْتُمُ اللَّاتَ وَالْعُزَّى وَمَنَاتَ الثَّالِثَةَ الْأُخْرَى That have you seen these idols of theirs, اللَّاتَ الْعُزَّى and manat, And this is a rebuke upon those idols. And we mentioned those idols last time and how they were destroyed after the conquering of Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ had those idols destroyed and the other idols, the hundreds of them that were in and around the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ came upon the conquering of Mecca with his spear and began smashing those idols and breaking them. So then we come to this next hadith in the chapter. And this hadith is closely connected to the timeline. Coincidentally, it is connected in the timeline. Because this hadith, the events which happen in it, occurred shortly after the conquering of Mecca. So after the conquering of Mecca, those other idols were destroyed. This hadith, what we're going to see now, these are events that happened shortly thereafter. 
shortly after the conquering of Mecca. So in the hadith it says, وَعَنَبِ وَاقِدٍ اللَّيْثِ قَالْ خَرَجْنَا مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ إِلَى حُنَيْنِ وَنَحْنُ حُدَثَاءُ عَهْدٍ بِكُفْرٍ Abu Waqid al-Layfi, whose name was Al-Harith ibn Awf, al-Layfi from Banu al-Layth, from the tribe Banu al-Layth, the children of al-Layth, he mentions that we exited, we went out along with the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to Hunayn. To the battle of Hunayn. And the battle of Hunayn was almost immediately after the conquering of Mecca. Some of the scholars they say it was barely a month afterwards. Barely a month after the conquering of Mecca. And when the conquering of Mecca occurred, when the Muslims they went back from Medina to Mecca and they conquered Mecca. Then after that conquering, when news spread everywhere, that the Muslims have conquered Mecca, and the Quraysh have fallen, news spread everywhere. And many people became convinced of the truthfulness of the Prophet Muhammad And so they began coming to the Messenger in large groups, and all of them, one a group at a time, began accepting Islam and entering into Islam. Large numbers of people entered into Islam after the conquering of Mecca. Large groups of them from various areas, they would come to the messenger and take the shahada and enter into Islam. And that's what's mentioned in the Quran. إِذَا جَاءَ when the victory from Allah comes, the conquering comes, then what are you going to see? In groups, and you see the people entering into Islam in groups, in large amounts. So many people, they entered into Islam after the conquering of Mecca. And so here, Abu Waqid al-Layfi, he mentions this right at the start of the narration, that we went out with the messenger towards the battle of Hunayn, which was barely a month after the conquering of Mecca. And he says, وَنَحْنُ that we were very new from having left kufr, meaning they had only just become Muslims. They had only just entered into Islam. So the narrator mentions this at the beginning. In order to explain and give some background to the hadith as to why what happened happened, and why they questioned and asked, the Prophet wasallam about certain things. He's explaining from the start. It was because we were brand new into Islam yet. We had only just entered into Islam and our uh, uh, time period away from Kufr was still very small yet. 
we had only just left kufr and entered into islam so he says we exited with the messenger towards hunayn and hunayn is the name of a valley between mecca and taif and this particular battle was in shawwal in the year 8 hijra وذلك أن الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم لما فتح مكة ونصره الله على قريش خافت هوازن على نفسها أن يصلها الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم فأرادوا أن يغزو الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم قبل أن يغزوهم وجمعوا أمرهم ليغزو رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يريدون الدفاع عن أنفسهم فلم يمهلهم الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم بل غزاهم هو بنفسه صلى الله عليه وسلم وهذا هو الحزم والسياسة أن ولي أمر المسلمين إذا علم أن هناك من الكفار من يريد غزو المسلمين يبادر إلى ذلك العدو لا يمهله So it is mentioned that after the conquering of Mecca occurred that the people of that area they feared upon themselves that the Muslims would come and conquer them. So they were actually planning themselves to come and fight and defend themselves and their territory against the Muslims. And so when the Prophet ﷺ discovered this, he himself preempted them and gathered the army and went out. And this was the occurrence of Hunayn. So Abu Waqid, he says, when they were going along with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam towards Hunayn, وَكَانَ مِنَ الَّذِينَ أَسْلَمُوا فِي هَذَا الْعَامِ And he was from amongst those who had become Muslim only that year. And so they were very new to Islam. And therefore he is giving this explanation and justification as to why they said what they said and they were asking about what they were asking about and why they didn't know the details of Aqeedah yet, as you'll see in the narration. And the Shaykh says that Abu Waqid al-Layfi, the fact that he mentioned this at the beginning of the narration, was to excuse himself and the others from what occurred in the narration. And the Shaykh says, this is because إنهم لم يتفقهوا كما كان الصحابة الذين مع الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم فقها عرفوا العقيدة ودرسوها لكن هؤلاء أسلموا قريبا ولم يتمكنوا من التفقه في العقيدة. So these Muslims were new yet and they had not had the opportunity to learn about the religion fully in detail yet and to learn about the aqidah in detail yet. And so the shaykh says slightly later, وَهَذَا دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ آفَةِ الْجَهْلِ وَأَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ قَدْ يَقَعُوا فِي الشِّرْكِ بِسَبَبِ الْجَهْلِ وَفِيهِ الْحَثُّ عَلَىٰ تَعَلُّمِ الْعَقِيدَةِ وَمَعْرِفَتِهَا وَالتَّبَصُّرِ فِيهَا خَشْيَةَ أَنْ يَقَعَ الْإِنسَانُ فِي مِثْلِ مَا وَقَعَ فِيهِ هَؤُلَاء So this indicates the calamity of ignorance that a person may fall into shirk due to ignorance. And so there is an encouragement for the person to learn aqidah and to have knowledge of it and insight into it.
lest a person falls into uh, the likes of what occurred in this narration. Of course, as we will come to see, they did not actually, in the narration, in the event that occurred, they didn't actually fall into shirk. Rather, they were questioning the messenger about the affair. And we'll see that as we come to it now. So he says, خَرَجْنَا مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ إِلَى حُنَيْنِ وَنَحْنُ حُدَثَاءُ عَهْدٍ بِكُفَرِ وَلِلْمُشْرِكِينَ سِدْرَةٌ يَعْكُفُونَ عِنْدَهَا وَيَنُوطُونَ بِهَا أَصْلِحَتَهُمْ And he said, the mushrikun, they used to have a particular tree. They used to have this particular tree where they would do i'tikaf at. They would go and do i'tikaf at the tree. I'tikaf basically means where you go and stay in some place. That's the meaning of the word i'tikaf in the Arabic language. Al-mukth wal-luzum. Sticking to somewhere and staying there. That's the meaning of i'tikaf in the Arabic language. So when in the narration it says, يَعْكَفُونَ عِنْدَهَا That they would go to this tree and do i'tikaf there, meaning they would stick to that tree and sit there and stay there, believing that barakah was descending upon them. So they would go to this particular tree, the mushrikun, and they would sit at that particular tree and remain at that particular tree for lengthy periods of time. And يَنُوطُونَ بِهَا أَصْلِحَتَهُمْ And they used to hang their weapons off this tree. They would hang their weapons off this particular tree, believing that there was barakah to be had from this tree, that barakah would go into their weapons, barakah would go into their armory, so they would hang up their weapons, their swords, their shields and other affairs onto this particular tree, believing there was baraka that came from this particular tree. So then in the narration Abu Waqid says, يُقَالُ لَهَا ذَاتُ That this particular tree was known as ذَاتُ anwaq, meaning the one where you hang items off, the tree where you hang the items off. فَمَرَرْنَا بِسِدْرَةٍ He says, we then ended up passing by a particular tree of that same nature, that same type of tree. فَقُلْنَا So we said, يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ O Messenger of Allah, اِجْعَلْ لَنَا ذَاتَ أَنْوَاطِ كَمَا لَهُمْ ذَاتُ أَنْوَاطِ O Messenger of Allah, why not make for us, meaning pick for us and tell us which tree. Tell us which tree can we use as a dhatu anwaq, where we can hang our weapons off to get barakah, just like the mushrikun have these trees, and they hang their weapons on them and they get barakah. So they were asking the Prophet wasallam. Is it possible that you can tell us which tree we can use to be able to get barakah by hanging our weapons off it? فَقُلْنَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ اجْعَلْ لَنَا ذَاتَ أَنْوَاطٍ كَمَا لَهُمْ ذَاتُ أَنْوَاطٍ أَعْجَبَهُمْ 
Amalul Mushrikeen. They were impressed by the actions of the Mushrikeen because they themselves were brand new out of shirk into Islam. They were brand new into Islam yet and they had not learned the details of Islam and the detailed affairs. So they said the Mushrikeen have this tree, they get barakah of it. O Messenger of Allah, can you determine for us, tell us which tree we could use and hang our weapons on it and get barakah too? فَظَنُّوا أَنَّ هَذَا عَمَلْ سَائِغٌ So they thought, due to being new to Islam, that this is something which is permissible and there's nothing wrong with that. وَهُمْ يَحْرُصُونَ عَلَى تَحْصِيلِ الْبَرَكَةِ And they were eager, they were eager to get barakah. فَطَلَبُوا مِنَ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم أن يجعل لهم شجرة يعكفون عندها وينوطون بها أصلحتهم طلبا للبركة. So they came to request from the messenger to ask him, can you appoint for us a tree where we can go do i'tikaf at and we can hang our weapons off in order to get baraka? ولكن انظروا إلى أدب الصحابة. مع الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم حيث لم يقدموا إلى هذا الأمر من عند أنفسهم بل رجعوا إلى الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم The Shaykh says look at the way that they did it They didn't just go and pick a tree from those sidra trees and then stick on their weapons and begin doing the action They didn't just go and start doing it Rather, after having entered into Islam, they understood already. They understood already the need to return back to the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, to return back to the revelation, the Quran, the Sunnah. So they returned back to the Messenger. Didn't just go and do it. They came and sought from the Messenger his input regarding this affair, and how and what and when. So they came and made that request to him. فَالْمُسْلِمُ إِذَا أَعْجَبَهُ شَيْءٍ وَيَظُنْ أَنَّهُ خَيْرٍ فَلَا يَسْتَعْجِلُ حَتَّى يَعْرِضَ هَذَا عَلَى الْكِتَابِ وَالسُنَّةِ وَيَسْأَلْ عَنْهُ أَهْلَ الْعِلْمِ الثِّقَاتِ This therefore shows that a Muslim who thinks something is good shouldn't just go and do it thinking that this is good and surely this must be an action beloved to Allah, surely. And then just goes and does it. Rather, it is not about your istihsan. It is not about what you think is surely a good action. And surely Allah will love it. Not necessarily. Rather, you must return back to the Quran and the Sunnah and ask the trustworthy people of knowledge whether this action is actually something Beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is an action that would be deemed a valid and correct uh, worship or not. فَفِيهِ دَلِيلٌ عَلَى وُجُوبِ الرُّجُوعِ إِلَى الْكِتَابِ وَالسُنَّةِ فِي أُمُورِ الْعِبَادَةِ وَأَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ لَا يَعْمَلُ بِاسْتِحْسَانَاتِهِ أَوْ اسْتِحْسَانَاتِ غَيْرِهِ بدون أن يرجع إلى الكتاب والسنة 
وهذا يدل على أن العبادات توقيفية So this indicates the obligation of returning back to the Quran and the Sunnah when it comes to the affairs of worship and that a person doesn't just do what he thinks is good doesn't just go and do what he thinks is good or what other people have decided and thought is good because it is not about what you think is good it is about what is established as being good in the Quran and in the Sunnah, in the Revelation. And that's why the Salaf, they mentioned, كَمْ مِنْ مُرِيدٍ لِلْخَيْرِ لَمْ يُصِبْهُ So many people, they desire goodness. They think this is surely a good action and Allah will love it. And that is surely a good action and Allah will love it. They said, how many people, they want goodness, but they never get to it. They never achieve it. They never obtain it. Because all they are doing is going off and doing actions that they think are good. Surely celebrating the birthday of the Prophet is just us showing our love for the Messenger and showing our respect for the Messenger. Surely that should be good. And it's like the, the uh, example of a Shaykh al-Albani where he quotes from one of the Salaf, I think, where somebody came in at Fajr time, came to the Masjid at Fajr time, and he began praying Sunnah prayers, Nafal prayers. Began praying Sunnah prayers, Nafal prayers, and so afterwards it was said to him, what is this? What are you doing? He said, what? Would Allah not love me to pray? Praying nafal prayers, superrogatory prayers, waiting for the jama'ah, fajr prayer jama'ah, 20 minutes away yet, 15 minutes away. I thought I'd pray nafal prayers. Would Allah not love for me to do worship and to pray the nafal prayers? Two after two after two, just keep praying until the jama'ah for fajr occurs. So it was said to him, rather the rebuke is not upon you praying. Praying is a good thing. But the rebuke upon you is for opposing the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in how you are doing your worship. Because at the time of Fajr, when Fajr time enters, there is no nafal prayers to pray. You're not supposed to pray any nafal prayers, any sunnah prayers apart from the actual two sunnah of Fajr. There are no other supererogatory prayers you carry on praying until the jama'ah. So he was told it's not about worship or the action of prayer. It's about you opposing the sunnah in what you're doing. Prayer is good. But at this time, the sunnah tells you you're not supposed to pray. It's like any of the other times of prohibition. A person goes and prays at the time of prohibition and says, why would Allah not love me to pray? We say, of course Allah loves you to pray. But you are now doing it in a way or in a method which is opposing the sunnah. That's why when it comes to bid'ah, there are two types of bid'ah. Bid'ah asliyah and bid'ah idhafiyah. The bid'ah asliyah, the bid'ah which is an innovation from its roots, from the absolute source of it, it is completely innovated and made up 
nothing to do with the religion anywhere. But then the other type of bid'ah, which can be more confusing to some, is the bid'ah idafiyah, the added on bid'ah, where the root of the action, the source of the action is valid. It is in the Quran and the Sunnah, the source of that action. But then a person does that valid act of worship in a way which opposes the Sunnah. Maybe in the number of times that he does it. Maybe he specifies some particular figure or some particular number or specifies some particular time. He says at this time on this day do that worship. And in the Quran and the Sunnah, it doesn't tell you to specify worship, that particular worship to this particular time or this particular day or after this particular prayer. So the worship itself is established. But the method of what a person is doing in terms of the numbers, in terms of the times, in terms of the description of how he's doing it, could end up making that into a bid'ah. So there, the origin of the worship is established, but the method of it afterwards makes it a bid'ah. But otherwise, the other type is where the origin, from the very beginning, it's a bid'ah. It was never established to do this type of action or worship in the religion. So a person cannot just act upon what he thinks is good, what he thinks is surely beloved to Allah. Rather we say, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي Say that if you truly love Allah and you want to show your love for Allah, then do what? What is the method of showing your love for Allah? By following, following the revelation, following the messenger, following what Allah has revealed in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Because worship is tawqifiyah, as the shaykh mentions. Meaning that you cannot do any worship. You're not allowed to do any worship unless you can find evidence for it. That's the way it works. The way that this path works is you cannot do any worship until and unless you have an evidence for it, which is the opposite to the worldly affairs. With the worldly affairs, you can do whatever you want, unless you find an evidence or you know of an evidence or an evidence exists telling you such and such is impermissible. With worldly affairs, it's open. Do what you want. You want to buy Galaxy iPhone, do what you want. You want to buy uh, Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Nissan, do what you want. With worldly affairs, it's open to you. There's no restriction unless an evidence tells you there is a restriction to something. An evidence tells you such and such would not be permissible because of X, Y, and Z. Then that such and such from the worldly affairs, okay, you don't do that then. But with worship, it's not like that. With worship, it's not do whatever you want. But if an evidence tells you you can't, then don't do it. It's rather don't do anything unless you can find the evidence and you know of the evidence that exists for that action. But the problem is the people, they twist it. For the people, when they do an innovation, they'll say to you, 
What's your proof that it's wrong? They do an innovation and they'll say to you, what's your proof it's wrong? This question is twisted from the start. The answer to that is, I don't have to give you proof that it's wrong. You have to give me proof that it's actually an act of worship and right, and that it's in the Qur'an and the Sunnah in the first place. If you can't prove that to me in the first place, then there's your evidence that it's wrong. So it's not how people get confused. They come and say to you, give me the evidence that it's wrong. You tell me why I can't do this and why I can't do that. You don't have to do that. You say to them, rather it's very simple. If you are allowed to do this, you tell me where the evidence is that you can and I'll do it. If you can't, then there's your evidence why you can't do it. So the asal of worship is that ibadah is tawqifiyah. That you must stop tawqifi, meaning you must stop. Stop at whatever is in the Qur'an, don't make up anything new yourself. Stop at whatever is in the sunnah, don't make up anything new yourself. Tawqif, to stop somewhere, tawqifiyah. So the fact that they came back to the Prophet ﷺ to inquire about this action shows that they knew you have to return back to the evidences, you have to return back to the revelation, and you cannot just do something you think is good. As far as they were concerned, they thought it was good, they thought it was okay. The mushrikun previously had done that and they were aware that they do that. And they were brand new to Islam yet, and they weren't aware of the details of these affairs yet. But they didn't do it. They came to the messenger to inquire. فَقُلْنَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So we said, O Messenger of Allah, make for us a tree as they have a tree. فَقَالَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ So then, the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard this inquiry from them regarding getting a tree, for barakah, he said to them, notice what he said to them, three things. The first, Allahu Akbar. He said, he said to them, Allahu Akbar. Then he said to them, Innaha as-sunan. As-sunan or as-sunan. Innaha as-sunan or innaha as-sunan. And then, Qultu walladhi nafsi biyadih. Three different things at the beginning of the answer that indicate how severe this affair was. Because this was an affair of aqidah and shirk. So the Prophet ﷺ began by saying, Allahu Akbar. And that is a statement you can make at the time of anger or at the time of uh, 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 something uh, surprising you or amazing you. And in this case, it was a means of the Prophet ﷺ demonstrating to some level of anger at this statement and surprise at this statement and declaring Allah to be the mighty, majestic and great above such affairs, above such affairs of a tree giving you barakah. Allahu Akbar. So the Prophet ﷺ declared the greatness and the might and the majesty of Allah to begin with. And then he said, Innaha as-sunan, and sometimes you'll see it as as-hanan, and that means at-turuq 
al-masluka meaning what people do in sunan this is the kind of thing people do this is the kind of thing or the kind of trajectory or pathway or route people always go down in sunan this is what people always do a asbab ان الذي اوقعكم في هذا هو التشبه بما عليه الناس that the reason you have fallen into this or come to make this request is because you are following in the footsteps of the people the mushrikun used to do it and so they were following in the footsteps of what they had seen previously and what they were aware of previously إِنَّهَا sunan أَوَا sanan, Meaning these are the types of things that people do and other people follow and walk upon those same routes and roads and same activities and same methodologies without thinking, without realizing whether it's right or wrong, just following in whatever everybody else does. And here in specific, it was the mushrikun who were doing it previously. فَالتَّشَبُّهُ بِالْكُفَّارِ فِي عِبَادَاتِهِمْ وَتَقَالِيدِهِمِ الْخَاصَةِ بِهِمْ آفَةِ خَطِيرَةِ مَنْ تَشَبَّهَ بِقَوْمٍ فَهُوَ مِنْهُمْ So in particular, if you begin to imitate and follow the practices of the mushrikun, the practices of the kuffar, then that is something which is a terrible and dangerous calamity for a person to be falling into. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ تَشَبَّهَ بِقَوْمٍ فَهُوَ مِنْهُمْ Whomsoever imitates a people, then he is from them. Whomsoever imitates a people, then he is from them. Years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when the Muslims began coming to this country, more and more Muslims began entering into this country from various nations, a lot in those days from the subcontinent, from India, Pakistan, those areas. When they came initially, and the elders will tell you these stories, in the early days when they arrived in this brand new country, they've come from the subcontinent, from the Muslim lands, or amongst the Muslims and the Muslim areas, and they've come here now and they've seen these practices that they had not seen before. The practices of Christmas and the lights everywhere and the decorations everywhere. And so they, when they came in the early days from their naivety, many of them, and I remember this from the younger days, many of them, they used to put up Muslims. On their windows, they used to put up lights saying, we're not we're not Christian, we're not, we're Muslim, but we live in this country, this is what they do, it's no problem, put up some lights. And in reality, it was imitation. That is of course imitation. Alhamdulillah, many of those afterwards now, they've left that and they don't do that anymore. And some of them perhaps still do. But this was something which was a direct imitation. Imitation of the kuffar and their methods and what they do. So the Prophet said, whoever imitates a people, then he is from them. وَمَا أَصَابَ بَعْضُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ مِنَ الْأُمُورِ شَنِيعًا 
And some of the worst things that have happened to the Muslims, some of the worst types of characteristics and other affairs, are from what they have imitated from the kuffar. أول ما حدث الشرك في مكة هو بسبب التشبه بالكفار لأنه لما ذهب عمر بن نحي الخزاعي إلى الشام وجد أهل الشام يعبدون الأصنام أعجبه ذلك وجلبها إلى الحجاز ومن ذلك الوقت فشى الشرك في أرض الحجاز فهو أول من غير دين إبراهيم عليه الصلاة والسلام فهذه هي الآفة هذه هي السنن التي تعجب منها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم An example given is Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuzai This individual when he went to Sham in Sham in those days idols were widespread and so when he went and he saw how they have all these idols and statues and different things, he was impressed with what he saw. And so he brought back some idols to the land of Hijaz, Mecca and all those areas, the land of Hijaz. He brought some idols back because of his amazement at what he saw with these idols and things that they were worshipping over there. So that was an imitation from his amazement at what he saw. He imitated them and brought back idols to the land of Hijaz, and then shirk became widespread amongst the people there too. Then the third thing the Prophet told them, first, Allahu Akbar, then, إِنَّهَا sunan. then, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِ بِيَدِهِ He takes an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, takes an oath upon what he's about to say, to show you the severity of the affair. That it's upon an oath what he's going to say. He says, قُلْتُمْ وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ كَمَا قَالَتْ بَنُوا إِسْرَائِيلَ لِمُوسَى You have said, just like Bani Israel said to Musa alayhi salam. Banu Israel, the children of Israel as they say in English in the translation sometimes, those who were from the believers, the believers with Musa alayhi salam, after what happened with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was chasing them, and when they got to the Red Sea, and the Muslims were saved, and Pharaoh and his people were destroyed and drowned, after that, when they crossed over to the other side, they came across people who were worshipping idols. They came across people who were worshipping idols. So when they saw that, they said to Musa alayhi salam, قَالُوا يَا مُوسَى اِجْعَلْ لَنَا إِلَهًا كَمَا لَهُمْ آلِهًا O Musa, make for us gods. As they have all these gods, make for us gods. As they have all these other gods, these deities. طَلَبُوا مِن مُوسَىٰ أَنَّهُ يَجْعَلْ لَهُمْ صَنَمًا يَعْبُدُونَهُ كَهَا أُولَىٰ إِلَّذِينَ يَعْبُدُونَ صَنَمًا 
They requested from Musa alayhi salam, could he make for them an idol, a statue that they could worship as they saw the people worshipping. Qala Musa alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam said to them, Innakum qawmun tajhaloon. That indeed you are a people who are ignorant. You are ignorant of this affair and you do not realize yet and you are not aware and the details of Tawheed and Shirk and that this is Shirk. Innakum qawmun tajhaloon. As-sababu alladhi awqa'akum fi hadha huwa al-jahlu bit-tawheed. And the cause, what has caused you to fall into this is your ignorance of Tawheed, your ignorance of knowing the realities of Tawheed. وَهَذَا كَمَا ذَكَرْنَا يُوجِبُ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِينَ أَنْ يَتَعَلَّمُوا الْعَقِيدَةِ وَلَا يَكْتَفُوا بِقَوْلِهِمْ نَحْنُ مُسْلِمُونَ This therefore shows that a Muslim must learn the correct aqidah and not just sit there saying, but we're Muslim, I'm Muslim. As a Sheikh Al-Fawzan always says, don't just say you are Muslim in name. That I'm Muslim, I have a Muslim name, I was born in a Muslim family, what more do you want? The Sheikh says, no, don't just identify yourself as a Muslim just because of your background. I was born Muslim, my family is Muslim, we're Muslims. Do you pray five times a day? Maybe he says no. Then what are you talking about Muslim? The Sheikh says, don't just sit there saying my ID is Muslim. I have a Muslim ID. My family is Muslim. My name is Muslim. I was born Muslim into a Muslim family. We're Muslims. Do you pray five times a day? Do you establish the rights of the religion? If the answer is no to everything, then what identification of you being Muslim are you upon? The Sheikh says, don't just sit there saying you're a Muslim in name. A Muslim by name. Not a Muslim in practice. You need to be a Muslim in practice, having understanding of the religion and of aqidah. So this also shows the Shaykh says, Afatul Jahl, wa anna al Jahl, qad yuqi'u fil kufr billahi azza wa jal, wa hadihi khutura azima. So this indicates what ignorance can do. Ignorance could lead a person to falling into shirk. It leads a person to falling into shirk because that person has not identified and understood and learnt the correct aqidah. So the Prophet said to them that by the one whom my soul is in his hand, you have said, just as the people of Musa alayhi salam said to him, اجعل لنا إلها كما لهم آلها قال إنكم قوم تجهلون لا تركبون سننا من قبلكم. You will end up. The messenger says to them, you will end up falling into and following the path of those who came before you. That this is what people do. They follow in the footsteps of those who came before them. So the meaning here is very clearly a rebuttal upon this request. The Prophet ﷺ by giving them that reply was highlighting to them that this request of theirs or this inquiry of theirs, the answer to it is 
that it is impermissible for you to take a tree as baraka and to hang your weapons on it to seek baraka, that it is a means of shirk to do that, and your request is similar to the request of Banu Israel to Musa. Give us deities and idols that we can worship as they worship. So this was highlighted to them that it is impermissible. فالحاصل أن هذا فيه دليل على أن العبرة في المعاني لا في الألفاظ فاختلاف الألفاظ لا يؤثر وإن سموه توسلا أو سموه إظهارا لشرف الصالحين أو وفاء بحقهم علينا كما يقولون هذا هو الشرك سواء بسواء فالذي يتبرك بالحجر أو بالشجر أو بالقبر قد اتخذه إلها وإن كان يزعم أنه ليس بإله فالأسماء لا تغير الحقائق إذا سميت إذا سمي إذا سميت الشرك توسلا أو محبة للصالحين أو وفاء بحقهم نقول الأسماء لا تغير الحقائق. The Sheikh says in conclusion what we can say here is one of the important things that the name of something does not change the reality of it. This is like a principle they mentioned. The name of something doesn't change the reality of something. If you get a bottle of alcohol, which is, the ruling on it is, haram. And you take the label off the bottle, and you go get the label off the juice bottle, and stick it around that bottle of alcohol. Now that bottle of alcohol is known as, according to the label, a bottle of orange juice. You've changed the name of that bottle taken its sticker off and put this orange juice sticker on it, you've changed the name of that bottle and the contents of that bottle. You're now calling this bottle and the contents of it orange juice. But has that changed the reality of what is in the bottle and the ruling upon that reality? Not at all. It is still alcohol in there and the ruling is that it is still haram. Put as many orange juice stickers on top as you want. Meaning therefore they say, changing the name of something doesn't change the reality of it. And this is perhaps understood mostly these days when it comes to interest. A lot of these Muslim companies and Muslim this and Muslim that and Islamic this and Islamic that. And they say we'll give you Islamic such and such and Islamic such and such and there's no interest involved. And the reality is with a lot of them, they are simply changing and moving the figures around so that the interest portion of it isn't sat there on the accounts as interest. It's moved around and meddled with so that the figures can fit in here and can fit in there and they can be given another title here and another title there. But the reality is at the end of it, they are taking so much and there's another amount which is basically just the interest. Even if they change the name, no, this is X, Y, and Z, and this is this, and this is that, and this is some service charge, and this is this. The reality is they are taking an amount, and then there's an amount there. Clearly, when you work out all the figures, that is just the interest on the contract. So changing the name of something doesn't change the reality of it. That's why the scholars have said a lot of these so-called 
halal mortgages and halal this and halal that, you have to look at them very carefully. Because some of them, it may just be a case of changing the name of things. The interest has just been fiddled around here and there, and the name of it has been changed into this charge and that charge, and in reality all of that is just the interest portion of the contract. So you have to be careful with these affairs. The name of something doesn't change the reality of it. And what the Sheikh means in context of this chapter is, if people come along now, and they say, we go to the graves of the dead, but we're not seeking barakah from them. We're not seeking barakah, we're not doing tabarruk. We're not doing that. We agree with you about this chapter. We're not doing tabarruk. We're not seeking barakah. We just go there for tawassul. Or we just go there in honor of these great imams and the great maulana. To honor him, we go there and we sit there for five hours. Just to honor him. We're not doing barakah, we're not seeking anything. Or that we go there uh, in order to fulfill his right upon us. He was such a great maulana, such a great imam, and he did so much for us. He has a right upon us that we go and respect his grave and sit there all day long. So we're not seeking barakah, we're just going to respect him, to fulfill the rights he has upon us, to show our love for him, to seek tawassul from him, all types of other words to get around having to say that yes, we are going there because we believe we'll get barakah from it. So the Sheikh says, if they begin to change the names of their actions, but their actions are one and the same as the mushrikun of old going there to seek barakah, that's the reality of what they are doing, call it whatever they want to call it, then it doesn't change anything. The names do not change the reality of what they are doing, going to the graves and the stones and whatever it is, seeking barakah from those affairs. وَفِيهِ أَيْضًا And also from what is understood here, أَنَّ حُسْنَ الْمَقَاصِدِ لَا يُغَيِّرُ مِنَ الْحُكْمِ شَرْعِ شَيْئًا That having a good intention doesn't change the Islamic ruling on something. You could come across somebody who when you speak to him, he speaks to you with what appears to be a pure intention. I'm just going to the grave of the the great wali, he was our imam, and he's an innocent miskeen. You can see from the way he's talking, he genuinely thinks he is being completely sincere with ikhlas what he's doing. But that, no matter what level of purity he thinks he's upon, and he demonstrates that won't justify his action for him. No matter what your level of sincerity might be, then that sincerity clearly is misplaced if you're doing an action that is not upon the sunnah. Because a person who does something with ikhlas, but without al-mutaba'ah, then they are simply falling into bid'ah. The one who does bid'ah, is he ever going to say to you that he's doing his action without sincerity? Of course not. The one who celebrates the birthday of the Prophet, he will say to you, of course, that he's doing this action sincerely for the sake of Allah, sincerely for his love of the Messenger. 
But no matter what this supposed sincerity is, your action won't be deemed okay unless it is in accordance to what's in the revelation. Also we learned here the danger of following the kuffar and imitating the kuffar, the danger of imitating them. Another thing which you learn here is the Prophet ﷺ rebuked these new companions, meaning clarified to them and told them, no, you cannot have a tree, basically, and you cannot hang your weapons. He basically rebuked and clarified that this is impermissible. The scholars, they say, look at the situation they were in, look at the context. They were on their way to battle. Normally when you're on your way to battle, or in any kind of situation of seriousness, and you need the support and help of everybody around you, you wouldn't want to say anything to any of your helpers and supporters that may upset them. Normally you wouldn't want to do that. If you're taking a bunch of guys to your house, they're going to help you to fix up your house. And they're going to get involved with all of the plastering and the brickwork and the dust and the dirt. And anybody who's done it, you know what it's like. You don't want to say anything to that group of brothers that's going to upset them and they're going to pack up and go. You want to keep it easy with them. They're helping you. You wouldn't want to say anything to upset them in a situation where you need them and their support along with you. But the scholars, they say, look at this. They are on their way to battle. And the messenger, of course, needs all of the Muslims and the companions and the, the, the believers to be with him. But even in that situation, the messenger did not fear that maybe I should just stay quiet and not say anything. It may upset them and they may not want to participate with us in the battle or it may take the mood and the, uh, uh, the uh, atmosphere may be harmed if I rebuke them. None of it. Even on their way to battle, when it came to an issue of aqidah, the Prophet ﷺ clearly highlighted what the truth is and what falsehood is. No fear of, well, maybe this may affect this group of new Muslims and maybe they might even turn around and go back and not carry on with us. No thoughts of that nature. Even in that scenario, the Messenger outright clarified the reality of aqidah and the reality of tawheed to them. And this, the scholars therefore say, shows the importance of aqidah and tawheed. That even in that type of situation, nothing prevented the messenger from outright clarifying to them the reality. So the hadith highlighted the impermissibility of imitating the kuffar. However, أَمَّا الْأُمُورِ الْمُبَاحَةِ فَلَا بَأْسَ بِالْأَخْذِ بِهَا نَأْخُذُ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ الْخِبَرَاتِ الْمُفِيدَةِ نَأْخُذُ مِنْهُمَ الْبَضَائِعِ نَأْخُذُ مِنْهُمَ الْأَسْلِحَةِ هذه أمور كانت في الأصل لنا The point the Shaykh is making here is to what level can you use the argument of imitating the kuffar? Can you say, therefore we can't drive uh, uh, BMWs because they are manufactured by a country that is a kafir country. 
In fact, what car would be left? Are there any Muslim countries that manufacture cars? I don't know. So in that case, you wouldn't be able to drive a car. Because you'd say it is imitation of the kuffar. The BMW Germany and, and uh, Saab Sweden and this one Nissan and whatever, this country, that country, they're all kafir countries you manufacture the cars. So could you say, well, it's imitation of the kuffar then? If you're driving a BMW, it shows that you love the uh, kuffar and you love uh, the kafir countries. You cannot say that. Because the sheikh says, in affairs that are mubah, affairs that are mubah, where uh, development has occurred in certain manufacturing of this area, of that area, vehicles, phones, whatever it might be. This is manufacturing, it is development, it is progress that different countries have made in different technology. There's nothing wrong with that. The sheikh says, of course, you can purchase from them uh, various goods that are of benefit to you, uh, weapons and other affairs, phones, tablets, cars, these kinds of things. You don't have to say, well, is it manufactured by someone who is Muslim or is this manufactured from a kafir? You don't have to look into that when buying a phone or a car or anything. These are general affairs. That wouldn't be considered as imitation of the kuffar. Imitation of the kuffar, the scholars say, is something that is specific to them as a marker for them. It is specific to the kuffar as a marker for the kuffar. Such that if you see that thing, what comes to your mind is the kuffar. A car now, the whole world drives cars. Even in countries where, in the, in the Maldives, in the Maldives, the small islands, on the whole island, the maximum speed limit on their capital island, it was anywhere, I don't know now, it was I think 31 kilometers per hour or something like that. I'm sure somebody will uh, correct it what it is exactly. 30 kilometers per hour, 22 miles per hour on the whole island. That's the maximum speed limit. You think, why is anybody going to have a car? And yet they have cars. And they drive around at 20, 25 miles an hour around the island. Everybody has cars. You cannot say this is an imitation of anyone. An imitation of the kuffar or an imitation. Cars are everywhere. And they are a, a technology used by everyone. You don't see a car and think of the kafir. So those are affairs that are specific to them. And they are like markers upon them. You see that thing? You know this is from the ways of the kuffar. You see these, uh, like the lights we were talking about. Now some of the mosques in Nelson, the Sufi masjid has Christmas lights on the dome. And around the mosque, on the walls, those uh, all the rainbow colored lights, the small lights, all everywhere. When you see those lights, what do you think of immediately? Their primary usage is in Christmas. That's where they use them. That's what you think of when you see those lights, that when they put them around their mosque as a place of worship, then it doesn't seem to make sense and it doesn't appear to fit. As a general usage of decoration, like you go to some different places, they have white lights on them and other lights as a means to make the building stand out. That's a, a mubah usage. But a usage like this on a mosque, you're going to put up those lights and one of the evidences for it there was a, an old English lady, a Christian lady, walking down the street in that mosque, or past that mosque, and she said to one of the brothers, when she saw all of the lights, she said, are you having a do in there today? Indicating that they recognize this is a celebration. 
It's a celebratory thing to have these lights on the dome and have the lights around the mosque. So the point is you are not to imitate them in affairs that are known to them and specific to them. But as for the general affairs, there is no imitation in that. And the final thing to mention here, the Shaykh says, قَدْ يُقَالْ أَنْتُمْ تَحَرِّمُونَ التَّبَرُّكَ بِالْأَشْجَارِ وَالْأَحْجَارِ وَالْقُبُورِ فِي حِينَ أَنَّ الصَّحَابَةِ In fact, we've mentioned this. Uh, the Shaykh says, what if somebody says to you that, how can you say Baraka is impermissible uh, from trees and stones and these affairs, when the companions themselves used to seek Baraka from the Prophet wasallam and what came off the Prophet wasallam his wudu water, his sweat, his hair, they used to seek baraka from those affairs. So the Shaykh says the answer with regards to that is, فَإِنَّهُ يُتَبَرَّكُ بِهِ أَمَّا التَّبَرُّكُ بِغَيْرِ النَّبِيِّ فَهَذَا لَمْ يَرِدْ حَتَّى مَعَ أَفْضَلِ الْأُمَّةِ كَأَبِي بَكَرُ وَعُمَرُ عُثْمَانُ عَلِيِّ So the Prophet وسلم, that was something specific to take baraka from him. As for anyone besides him, then it is not permissible and it is not correct to seek baraka besides him. Some people they say, okay, we'll stick to that then. We'll seek Baraka from the Prophet ﷺ only. So then they come with a large, like a treasure box kind of thing, a large chest, and they open it up, and there's a strand of hair. Nice and neat, like when you imagine these museums and they open it up, it's all red inside, and there's this strand of hair, how they present the diamonds and jewels in these kinds of boxes, a strand of hair. And they say, this is the hair of the Prophet And in some places, they bring out a shawl, a blanket, torn and battered and battered and torn blanket. They say, this was the shawl of the Prophet It was his shawl, his blanket that he used to wear. As Shaykh Rabi' and the other scholars have mentioned, all of this is Lies. These are lies they make up. This is a hair of the Prophet. And this is the blanket of the Prophet. They said the uh, Sheikh said they make up lies with these things to deceive the people. And then the people, they come and do what? Touch that box and touch the shoal, thinking that this is going to be Baraka now. This is from the Messenger. And the reality is there is no way to prove whatsoever that this is the hair of the Messenger. Or this is the blanket of the Messenger. So a person should not fall into that. If someone says, Khalas, we'll stick to what you said, only the messenger. And they bring out a blanket, they say, that's the messenger's blanket. So now rub it and do all these things. We say, no, you have no proof of this. These are all things that are made up by the people now. And it's not just one blanket. There's maybe 20 in the world, 50, 60, 100. Everywhere you go, they got a blanket of the messenger. Everywhere you go, they got some of the hair of the messenger. It is all made up. It's like the graves of the companions. Many countries you go now, they say, this is the grave of such and such a, uh, not companions of the prophets. You go to different countries, Turkey, other places, they say such and such, that was the grave of the prophet such and such. That's the prophet such and such. He was buried there. And then you go to some other country and they take you somewhere, this is the prophet such and such, his grave. All of those, Ibn Kathir or Ibn Taymiyyah, one of them mentioned, there isn't a single grave of any of the prophets that is proven that it's the grave of that prophet except the prophet Muhammad All these other graves, they say that was the grave of Sulaiman, the grave of Dawood, the grave of this one, the grave of that one. 
None of them are proven that they are the graves of any of those prophets. Only the grave of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So that brings us to the end of the chapter regarding seeking barakah from trees and stones and their likes. And we know that it is therefore impermissible to do that and an action of shirk. The next chapter will begin next week then is Bab Ma Ja'a Fi The chapter regarding sacrificing, slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah. Sacrificing and slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah. We'll begin with that from next week, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Is there anything to say now? You can say so. Parents of teenage children, advice for parents who have teenage children, parents and the tarbiyah of children, it is something which obviously begins from the younger age. If the parents are able to bring up their children upon the practice of the Qur'an and the Sunnah from when they are young, and they learn about the prayer, and they learn about Qur'an, and recitation of Qur'an, and they learn all of those things as they are growing up, then inshallah ta'ala, the teenage years won't be a problem, or as problematic as they would be, for the child that grows up without any proper Islamic tarbiyah prior to that. But even in the teenage years, and when people say the children, they become rebellious, and they don't listen, and all those kinds of things, upon the parents is to implement what they find in the revelation. The Prophet ﷺ, the way that he dealt with children, it is mentioned by his servant, Anas, or one of the servants, he mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ, in all of the years that he served him, the Prophet never got angry at him or rebuked him harshly or anything of that nature. So there are Various types of things you can learn from the way that the Prophet ﷺ used to behave with those who were younger, how he used to behave with the younger companions, with the hadith regarding Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, uh, Al-Fadl when he was in uh, uh, Hajj, and Al-Fadl was looking towards a woman who was in Hajj. And so the Prophet ﷺ turned his face, turned his face away, and that is clear guidance to that child, clear guidance to that youngster regarding your eyesight and where to look. So it's all about trying to explain to the kids a step at a time the different forms of the sunnah, the different parts of it. And you show them respect yourself, you behave with them in a good manner, you behave with them with love and respect. And inshallah ta'ala, they will behave back in the same way. And you make dua for them, make dua for your children regularly and constantly, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to raise them upon righteousness, show them the ayat in the Quran about the bir to the walidain, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala linked righteousness to parents directly after the obedience to Allah. وَاعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا وَا 
بِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا And there's other ayat just like that. That do not associate partners alongside Allah. Worship Allah, do not associate partners alongside Him. That's the right of Allah. Then the very next right after the right of Allah mentioned is the right of the parents. So the scholars, they say, look at how high the right of the parents is. And there are so many narrations about the rights of the parents. So perhaps a parent, the parents, they show some of those narrations to the children and they educate them regarding them and the great rewards behind them. And all of that, inshallah ta'ala, brings goodness for the children and for the parents. Suppose I decide like every single day, like after Isha, I decide to read like a set portion of the Quran at a set time every single day. Would that be considered bid'ah idafiyah? No, because you do not intend, if a person now says, I'm going to recite or memorize or a portion, a set amount of time every day at a particular time of the day to do the Quran, that wouldn't necessarily be a bid'ah. It may be in the case of some people who believe something extra behind what they are doing. But as for generally, that would not be a bid'ah. You, for example, a portion that every day after Isha, one hour every day after Isha is my Quran time. Perfectly okay. That you're going to revise your Quran. That's the time you've got in your schedule after Isha is perfect for you. You set that time aside every day to revise the Quran. Not because you believe there is some extra virtue to practicing and revising the Quran after Isha prayer every day. Not that you believe there's any virtue or anything specific about that time or in that way. But purely, like we say, coincidence. That's just the way it works out for you. You decide, I want to do the Quran every day, which you're supposed to. And that it works for me after Isha. That's how my schedule is. I got an hour every day after Isha. I can fit it in. So be it. Fit it into that one hour every day after Isha at the same time after Isha because you're not doing it for the time or for that day, uh, prayer or for anything linked to that. It is purely just the way your schedule works out and that's how you do it. So be it. That's different to somebody who specifies. When they, I saw papers once, some, uh, when, this was when we were youngsters in school and uh, one of our friends, he brought us a piece of paper. It was one of these nights. I don't know which month, they have a night every now and again. So one of these nights, and he said, you have to read 2,000 raka'at. I think it said 2,000, I'm sure it wasn't 200, I think it was 2,000. Or 1,000 or 2,000 raka'at. Then you have to recite, I don't know which ayah it was, 200 times. Then you have to do such and such 400 times, and such and such so many times, and you got to fit all this in before Fajr. So now, obviously, all of that is a bid'ah, and it may be bid'ah idafiyyah, because many of those actions in and of themselves are actions that are valid worship, uh, reciting the adhkar. There were lots of lists of adhkar. You've got to recite, subhanallah, this many times on this night, and you've got to do uh, alhamdulillah this many times on that night. Those figures they are specifying, and that night they are specifying. That's bid'ah now, of course. But as for the general schedules, there's no problem in that. In fact, not only is there no problem in that, it is encouraged to do that. As Sheikh Mimbazi used to say, you should schedule 30 minutes at least every day for the Qur'an. Every day, 30 minutes at least for the Qur'an. Hmm. In, uh, in, in Salah, in Tashahad, when we uh, 
Many of the scholars, they also mention seeking a refuge from the four. When you seek refuge from the four, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al qabr, the four. Seek refuge from those four, that's mentioned in the sunnah a lot. Then after that, you can make whatever dua you want. That's a dua, but that's the specified ones of the prayer. Yeah. Afterwards, you can make whatever dua you want for yourself. Yeah. As Shaykh Al-Thaymeen said, a youngster, he wants to make dua for marriage. Go ahead, you can make dua for marriage in the prayer. Somebody makes dua for a house. They want to buy a certain house, make dua for it. Anything righteous and good, which is good for your religion and your dunya even, you can make dua for those affairs in your prayer. And the dua is in the prayer. It's a mistake that people, they finish the prayer, Salam alaykum, salam alaykum, and then everybody raises their hands and makes the dua. It's a mistake. Dua is to be done in the prayer. That is the sunnah. Do it in the prayer, in the prostrations. At the end, before you give the salam. Not like the people have made a habit, don't do it in the prayer. After the prayer, specify dua. After the prayer, raising your hands and making dua, Sheikh bin Ba said, occasionally now and again, if you do it like that, no problem. But as for this thing now, every time after the prayer, raise your hands and make a dua, that's not the sunnah. In the prayer, do it, that is the sunnah. So if someone says, I have a long-term illness and I don't get any help from government because my husband earns enough. So, uh, yeah, my husband earns enough, therefore there are no benefits and things from the government. And he won't give me any money to buy things for myself. And I use the children's money. Um, I assume this is... Uh, I use the children's money to do shopping for them. Can I use that money sometimes to buy something for myself? Because my husband doesn't want to give me any money. The money for the children, I don't know if that means benefits for the children or what the husband gives her for the children. But in any case, the money that is given to her for the children. Firstly, obviously, for a husband not to be spending upon his wife, it is not correct because there are certain types of spending of infaq that are obligatory upon the husband. One of them is spending upon his wife. So the husband must provide the home the husband must provide the clothing. The husband must provide the food. The husband has to provide these affairs for his wife. And then the things that she requires, Allah Alam, what the things are. But it's not befitting for the husband if he is able. We're assuming here the husband has money and he's able, but he just doesn't want to give her anything. It's not a befitting and suitable thing for the husband to do. 
that if the wife requires certain things and they are suitable and reasonable, it is not a waste, it is not just shopping for the sake of it, but there are certain things that the wife needs, then it's not befitting that the husband doesn't give her anything and doesn't allow her to purchase those affairs that she requires. That is not from the goodness between the husband and the wife. If the husband is able and has the money to do so, and according to the question, he would have something that he earns enough that he doesn't require any benefits or anything. So it's not befitting for the husband to behave in that way in the first place. If that is the case and it is happening, then is she allowed to take some of the money for the children to buy what she requires? If what she requires are necessities, they are necessities that she requires, then it would be permissible. If the husband refuses to give her money and she requires necessities, and she can get those necessities from taking a small portion from the children's money and still get their shopping and get their affairs for them, then she has no choice and she can do that. And perhaps that will be uh, something which is permissible for her in the situation and the scenario that she's mentioned. But the husband should rectify his affairs in this and spend upon his wife and get her what she requires if there are necessities. If there are not necessities, they are luxuries, meaning anything which is not a necessity, it's just something, uh, some decoration for the house or some other affair which isn't a necessity, then we perhaps would say to the wife to be patient, to be patient without those luxuries or without those extras around the house. Maybe there are utensils in the house that are old and they require to be replaced, but be patient and use the old utensils if that is the case and those kinds of things. There's a narration about uh, the woman who has a righteous husband, but the righteous husband is poor, and he cannot provide for her. As long as he was a righteous husband, and she was patient upon the poverty, then that would be good for her. Good for her to be patient upon the poverty, patient upon the lack of money and the lack of resources, so whatever the situation here is, if it is not necessities, then be patient. And if it is necessities, then fattakullaha mastata'atum. If you have to use something to get it, then so be it. Last one then. Using a mic when leading the prayer. So the purpose of the mic when leading the prayer is for the voice to travel. And so the jama'ah, everybody in the congregation can hear it. But that wouldn't be considered a problem because it is in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to make the voice go further out. Only in those days without the mic it was done by, by people passing on that voice. So the Imam says, Allahu Akbar, or, or um, makes a movement into the next part of the prayer. Somebody a few rows down who can still hear will then repeat that so that those further back who can't hear can then also hear. So the extension of the voice is something that used to be done. The extension of the voice is something that can be done. It, it's in the Sunnah. Imagine you have a large congregation and no mic, then only the first five or six or ten rows are going to hear anything. 
the rose behind that aren't going to hear the imam at all in that case. So then you are allowed to have somebody who passes on the voice or passes on those, uh, 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 the takbir or whatever it is. So the extension of the voice is something known. These days it's done with a mic. So it's the same concept as what was done before. That isn't a problem. Hmm. We'll have to leave it there. It's getting late. Regarding the barakah of the Nabi. Uh. No, I don't know of any barakah now that you go seek specifically from the grave. People, that's what they think. That's why they go and wipe the walls around the grave where it is. But there's no barakah in that way now. You do the salam, that's it. All right, we'll resume next week, inshallah ta'ala.